Our New Testament reading, excuse me, our Old Testament reading is Joshua 2. Continuing on in the book of Joshua this evening, uh, which is our, uh, the, the series that I'm doing as I have opportunity to preach in the evenings, the series in Joshua started last, two Lord's Days ago, I believe. Joshua 2 this evening, God's holy word, brothers and sisters. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. And the, the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house, and give me a true token, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of yours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, 
Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his uh, blessing on it. Our great God, uh, again, we look to you. For you alone uh, can do the work we need of applying uh, your perfect word to our hearts and giving us life by it. We pray that we would hear not the words of a mere man, but the words of Christ speaking to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Last time we looked at Joshua, Joshua chapter 1. We said the text was answering two questions. Number one, can God's appointed leader pick up the mantle of leadership after Moses' death and courageously lead the people into the promised land? That was the first question. The second one, can God's people unite behind this appointed leader and follow him? Uh, The shadow of Israel's past, uh, uh, their catastrophic failure, to enter the the promised land the first time. Their their unbelief looms large in the background of Joshua chapter 1. Moses' death also looms large. They've lost this, this towering figure who led them so faithfully and so well. God has promised to give them this land, but can he really make good on that promise? He's promised to bring his holy people into the holy place. But can he realize that promise? The answer, of course, is yes. Absolutely yes. This is the same God that brought up the people out of Egypt, the same God that crushed Pharaoh and his armies, delivered the people through the Red Sea, the same God who shepherded, shepherded the people through the wilderness wanderings, miracle after miracle to sustain them. He equips Joshua to lead. That's what we saw in chapter 1. He enables the people to follow. So God promised and he delivered. The God who begins is the God who finishes. That's what chapter 1 was about. It's, it's about the realization of the promises of God. God's promises coming true. That's really what the entire book of Joshua is about. It's about the realization of the promises that God made to uh, his people under Abraham and, and then later through Moses. It's about the realization of the kingdom, of the inheritance that God had promised. Brothers and sisters, That's a a message that is not a distant and irrelevant message for us. It's a message that we need to have drilled into our minds, rooted deep in our hearts, because we so often doubt God's ability to do just this, to make good on His promises, to make good on the promise of realizing His kingdom. Because from a human perspective, we don't see the church going from strength to strength. We, from, from, from the perspective of, of this earth, we see so many obvious and outward signs of difficulty and, and decline. We see weakness and setbacks and sins. And it's not just in the world around us that we see these things. Think of your own life. Look at your own heart. You're not the Christian you wish you were. I'm not the, the Christian I wish I was. I don't have the faith I wish I had. I, I struggle so often with the same old sins and the same old temptations from the powers of darkness. Think of those words of our confession of faith. We are engaged in a continual and irreconcilable war, and the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. 
How do we not lose heart? How do we have faith and move forward trusting in God's promises that He will make good on them? That we will uh, gain the kingdom? Joshua chapter 2 tells us it's, it's a word of reassurance. It's a word of reassurance for faith. The whole point of the chapter is to show how the Lord reassures His people of His promises and His power to fulfill those promises. You could actually skip right over Joshua chapter 2 and not lose anything in the historical narrative. You go from the people uh, uniting behind Joshua at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 3, preparing to cross the Jordan and enter the land. So you don't lose anything essential, but, but, but what you do lose is essential to our faith, which is God's reassurance of His people. God, God, as it were, uh, kneels down to our level. He condescends to us, to, to our weakness. And he says, take courage. Be reassured. He says, he says, your spiritual enemies are terrified of me. I promise to be with you. This is the word that Joshua 2 speaks to us. It's God's word of reassurance for our faith. Well, how do, how do we see this? How does God reassure Israel here? Well, first, as we see in the text, diving into our first point, Joshua sends out spies into the land. This is our first point, reconnaissance, revisited, verses 1 through 7. So the narrative picks up in chapter 2, right where chapter 1 left off. The people are preparing to enter the land. They're getting ready. They're united behind Joshua. They've agreed to go in. And Joshua then decides to send out spies. Now, if you know your biblical history, of course, there, there might be a red flag or an alarm bell going off when you hear that Joshua is sending spies ahead into the Promised Land before the people go in. Because you remember last time Israel was in this situation, uh, Moses, the people with Moses on the brink of entering the land, Moses sends out spies to bring back a report on the land. And they, they come back saying, the land is good, but we are terrified. The, the, inhabitants of the, the, the inhabitants of the land are too strong for us. We don't stand a chance. Let's go back to Egypt. That's Numbers 13. That's what happened the last time Israel sent spies ahead into the Promised Land. But something different, something different is happening this time. What we're seeing here is a providence, uh, an, an ironic providence. Uh, one, one theologian calls this a redemptive reversal. A redemptive reversal. The same thing that led to a catastrophe of unbelief 40 years before is about to become the very thing God uses to reassure His people's faith as they get ready to go into the land. This, these spies are not going to come back saying, we are terrified. We can't conquer these people. God isn't giving us the land. No, they're going to come back saying, they are terrified. God is giving us the land, so let's go. Brothers and sisters, God delights to work this way. He delights to, 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 to take these things which uh, have been failures and, and reverse them and use them for our good. We see this uh, in this little detail here that there's only two spies sent out this time. Remember last time under Moses, Moses sends out 12. Ten come back with a bad report. Two come back with a good report. So Joshua only sends two spies. He only wants a positive report on the land. This is just a little detail of how God is, is, is working here to reassure his people. 
And notice, too, where the people are camped. There's, there's another instance of, of this uh, redemptive reversal here and where the people are camped, where the spies are sent out from. It's called Acacia Grove here. Back in Numbers 25, during the wilderness wanderings, the people stayed at the same place for a time. And when they were there, they committed adultery. And they, they started worshiping uh, the Moabite god. So this place that they've been in, Acacia Grove, Shatim as it is in the Hebrew, it's synonymous with covenant breaking. It's a word that in the Hebrew mind would have, would have, uh, would have registered with, that's where we broke the covenant. That's where we committed idolatry. But now, these people are going to set out from this place in faithfulness and trust, reassured and confident in the Lord. So even as this account of the spies begins, we're getting these hints that this isn't going to be like the last time the people prepared to enter the land. So that's what we see as, as we begin. Let's follow the spies. So they, they go to Jericho. Jericho is the main target. That's the first city that the people of Israel are going to have to face. It's a heavily fortified town. It's right in the frontier of the Promised Land. It's about two hours uh, journey from the Jordan River. The spies slip into the city through the gates. It's getting late, so they look for an inconspicuous place. They, they go to a prostitute's house somewhere they won't be noticed. Well, that's what they hope. In doing so, of course, they don't realize that God has brought them to the, the one place in the whole city where someone is turning from unbelief to faith in the Lord God of Israel. But someone does see them. Someone does see them as they go into this house. They recognize them as Israelites. So the, the, this word reaches the king that Israelite spies are in the city. They're in Rahab's house. So the, the Jericho police come knocking on the door. They don't suspect Rahab of anything. She's just a prostitute. They assume she didn't know who the men were. They tell, uh, they tell her that they are spies, Israelite spies, but Rahab's already hidden them. She tells the king's men, yes, the men came to me but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. So she misleads them and sends them away. Now, of course, we all know the story. It's a familiar passage for us. We know how it ends, but you can imagine the suspense of the spies up on the roof, lying hidden under these stalks of flax, hearing the conversation unfolding below probably dumbfounded that this is happening. They have just been saved by a Canaanite prostitute telling a lie. It's another reversal. It's another expectation flipped on its head. And brothers and sisters, it's another example of God's saving power at work where we least expect it. Now, I know that uh, with Rahab's lie here, there's a thorny ethical question which we could spend a long time discussing and debating in the text. And if you'd like to discuss it afterwards or some other time, uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, but but it, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, feels no need at all to go into that thorny ethical question. No later biblical author uh, feels the need to comment on it or address it because it's, it's not the point of the passage here. Rahab's lie is really beside the point. It's just a, it's just a, a detail beside the point. The, the, the point that the author wants us to see, that God wants us to, to focus on, is what we see in verses 8 through 11. That's our second point, what Rahab really knows. Because the point is not the lie that Rahab tells, it's actually the truth 
that she confesses. We see this contrast set up by the text itself. Twice, we see Rahab tell the men from the king of Jericho, I do not know. I did not know where they were from, she says. I do not know where they went. But listen to her first words to the spies. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That's the focus of this whole chapter. The whole chapter is structured so that this is the focal point, the center, not Rahab's lie, not not the climactic action that happens, not the, not the suspense, uh, the spies' near discovery or, the, or their dramatic escape. None of that takes center stage. No, it's Rahab's confession of faith, the truth she knows. I know, says Rahab. What does she know? Well, first, verse 9, she knows the Lord is giving the Israelites this land. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. She knows it's 100% guaranteed. This is your land. Yes, we are here sitting uh, behind these strong, well-fortified walls, but this is your land. There is no doubt in, in Rahab's mind. She's, she's echoing the, the words that the Lord told Joshua back in chapter 1. The Lord has already given them the land. It's certain. That's the first thing she knows. The second thing, she knows her own people are terrified of the Israelites. We see this in the rest of verse 9. She says, The terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. And again in verse 11, Our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. It's interesting to note here that their fear of God translates into a fear of God's people. They fear the Lord. They know He's the Lord of this people. He's bound Himself to this people. He fights for this people. And it fills them with terror. Makes them lose all their courage. Their hearts melt, the text says. That's the second thing Rahab knows. The third thing she knows. She knows what the Lord has done in the past. In verse 10, she recounts how God brought the people up from Egypt through the Red Sea, destroying Pharaoh's army in the sea, Israel's victory over the Amorite kings on the other side of the Jordan River. Now remember, even as Rahab recounts this, these events are 40 years in the past. Rahab herself probably wasn't born when, when these things happened. But the fame of these events have spread and it's stuck. Israel has a reputation now. And, and Israel's God has a reputation to the inhabitants of Jericho. If Egypt couldn't defeat them, who are we in Jericho to defeat them? So Rahab knows what the Lord's done. She's heard of it, and she's trusting in what the Lord has done. Done in the past to redeem his people. The fourth thing Rahab knows, she knows the Lord is God. All the other parts of her confession are building up to this. This is the climax of it. For the Lord your God, he is God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. She's saying, Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's the great God, the true God, the one who has all power and all control. He's not a provincial God limited to some small area or some small people. No, He's the God of heaven and earth. And nothing can stand against Him. That's, that's the, the very basic creed of the Old Testament. Yahweh is Lord. He is God. Rahab is saying, your God is my God now. I'm putting my faith in your God, not in my former gods. I'm going to fear your God and not my former gods. 
brothers and sisters, Rahab is held up to us as an example for our faith here. We saw this already in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab is in that catalog of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It's interesting, Joshua isn't there. He's not listed by name. Rahab is singled out. Why? Why is Rahab so remarkable? Why is her confession of faith in these verses such a a remarkable example for us? Well, maybe it's this. She didn't see the Exodus. Joshua saw it. She she didn't see the mighty acts of God in the wilderness. She wasn't there at Sinai when God thundered uh, forth from the mountain and gave the people the law. She's never seen the tabernacle. She's never read the Ten Commandments. She knows almost nothing about who Yahweh the Lord is. But she's heard enough. By God's grace, she's heard enough. She's heard of His might, and she fears Him. She believes in Him. The rest of her people have heard. They fear, but they're not, they're not ready to submit and to transfer their faith from their gods to Yahweh. But, but Rahab is. She's, she's, she's trusting in, in the Lord. God's given her eyes of faith, and, and she counts risking her life to trust Him uh, as better than trusting in the strong walls of Jericho. We have seen so much more of God's saving might. We have heard the testimony of Scripture the full testimony of Scripture to all God's awesome acts of saving power for His people. We've seen Christ. We've seen Him die for us. We've seen Him rise for us, ascend to heaven for us. Shall we not trust? If God could enable Rahab to have faith when she had but heard of His power and might, should, he not, uh, should we not seek to have Him give us greater, stronger faith? when we have seen so much more of his saving power. So Rahab, she's confessed her faith in the Lord God of Israel. But she doesn't just acknowledge God's might. She doesn't just submit to to his might. She actually has the boldness, the audacity to look for mercy from from this God that she's just confessed faith in. Now think about it. She's a pagan prostitute. Her, her, her whole life, everything about who she is, how she lives, is in contradiction with who God is and with His law. Pagan prostitutes in that culture are connected usually with pagan worship, idolatry. Everything she is is an affront to God's holiness. But she, she, she has this idea that if she looks to the Lord for mercy, she'll find it. And that's our third point, a refuge in the Lord's mercy. Verses 12 through 21. A refuge in the Lord's mercy. She pleads for mercy in verses 12 through 13. She asks the spies to promise that when they come to destroy the city, they, they will show her and her family kindness, loyalty. The word there is chesed, the, the, the word in the Hebrew that means loving kindness, steadfast love. It's, it's the word of God's covenant love for his people. The, the word can just mean kindness in some contexts, uh, kindness between uh, one person and another. It's like our word love. It depends on the context uh, to, to, to decide what it means. But in the context here, Rahab is seeking refuge from the wrath of God in the mercy of God. She is aligning herself with the covenant people of God. She's looking for covenant love. 
The spies respond willingly. If she remains faithful, faithful to the God of Israel, faithful to what she's told them she'll do, then she will receive this mercy. She promises to do this, and uh, she tells them where to hide to avoid being seen once they've left the city. She lowers them out the window of her house uh, by, by her cord. She's, um, uh, this is the sign that will mark out her house, that she'll be spared from God's wrath. Her obedience here is immediate. Her loyalty is complete. She's thrown herself entirely on God's mercy. What's the point here? Why, why include these details about Rahab seeking mercy in the Lord? Remember, the, the purpose, we said, of this whole chapter is to reassure the people, God reassuring his people as they prepare for the conquest. Why would this reminder of his mercy reassure them? Well, again, here's a pagan prostitute, an, an idolater, an idol worshiper, and an adulterer. By, by more than one count, she deserves to die under God's law. She deserves to have her house shaken and toppled with the rest of Jericho's walls and to be crushed beneath the falling stones. But she's feared Yahweh's might. She's cast herself on his mercy. So she's going to be treated as one of God's own now. Not just as one of God's own. She's actually going to get a place in the line of David. She's going to get a place in the line of Christ himself. God shows her mercy. Why does this reassure the Israelites? Well, I think it teaches them a couple things. One, the Israelites see that uh, as they see God's mercy to Rahab, they should see God's mercy to themselves. They should see her and they should remember that just as she did not receive God's mercy, so they did not receive God's mercy. God's showing them the love and the kindness of his covenant. God is giving them the land. And he's reminding them that everything they have and enjoy, every blessing they're going to inherit, is not because of them, but because of his saving mercy. Once they were just like Rahab. The second thing, uh, the second way I think this would reassure the Israelites is it would, it would call them not to depend on their status as Israelites. Not to depend on their birth, their, their, their place in the line of Abraham. Not, not to depend on the outward trappings of the law, the Mosaic ceremonies, but to depend just completely on the mercy of God. Because that's what, that's what Rahab does. She's not an Israelite, doesn't have the tabernacle, she doesn't offer a sacrifice here. She, she fears the Lord, and she casts herself on his mercy. So God is telling Israel, don't get it backwards. Don't put the priority on the wrong things. Yes, follow the laws that I've given you. Offer the sacrifices that point forward to Christ and the need for uh, full atonement of your sin. Keep the Ten Commandments that I've given you. But never forget the main point. Trust in my mercy. Don't depend on anything else. Trust in my mercy. What about you, brothers and sisters? What about me? Do we remember that everything that we have from Christ is because of his mercy? Some of us who perhaps have grown up in the church or been in Christ for many years can get the idea that our progress in the Christian life begins to play some part in our acceptance with God, our place in the covenant, that my obedience begins to influence and even become part of the basis of God showing me mercy and, and giving me the covenant blessings. Rahab's story tells us, no, absolutely not. This story here is, is the picture book version of what Paul writes in Galatians 2.16. He says this, Yet we know 
that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Rahab's story gives us the uh, full-color illustrations of that verse. This was supposed to reassure the Israelites as they prepared for the conquest. So does it reassure you? Your inheritance in Christ, the heavenly promised land that we're striving towards, does not depend on you. It doesn't depend on your birth. It doesn't depend on, on, on your status or your position in the church. God welcomes the worst sinners to Himself. He gives prostitutes a place in the promised land. It all depends on His mercy. He gives you a place in all your sin in His holy heavenly kingdom. These are the first order things, brothers and sisters, the things that uh, Rahab's story should remind us of and encourage us in. This is uh, and a further thing. As, as Rahab is uh, putting her faith in the Lord and seeking His mercy, we, we see that the wrath of God is coming on Jericho, and she sees that wrath coming. And, and for us, that points us to the, the, the destruction that's far greater than that, the destruction that's far greater than just the crumbling walls of Jericho. It's, it's the final judgment when Christ's wrath, uh, God's wrath is poured out on all of us for our sin. The only refuge is in Christ. That's the, that's the only place where safety can be found. That's where Rahab is running, and that's where uh, we should run to, casting ourselves on the Lord's mercy. Finally, the final thing we see in the text is all these things have happened, and then the people indeed are reassured by the Lord's might. In verses 22 through 24, reassured by the Lord's might. The spies return to Joshua, tell him what they've heard. They say, truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Isn't that uh, a disappointing reconnaissance report? That's all they have to say. No word of the strength and position of the enemy. No word of their strategies or the weak points in their defenses. All they say is, God really is giving us the land and the people are terrified of us. This is, the, this is a message of divine reassurance. This is exactly the report that people need. God called His people to courage in chapter 1. Here in chapter 2, He says, be reassured. Victory is certain and your enemies will melt away. They've already melted in their hearts before you even set foot in the Jordan River. Their strength and courage have evaporated. Brothers and sisters, to bring this home to our own hearts and lives, this hasn't changed for us. This hasn't changed for the church. It hasn't changed for us. Have our enemies become stronger? Has God become weaker? That these promises would not apply? Think about this in concrete terms. Who are, uh, who are our spiritual enemies? Who are the, the spiritual enemies that God has called us to holy war against? Well, Satan, powers of darkness, indwelling sin, pride, lust, covetousness, jealousy, partiality, anxiety, selfishness, idolatry. How much strength do these spiritual enemies have? Well, it's uh, clear they have more strength than we do. But are they stronger than the Lord? 
do we, do we begin to think as we fight this holy war that our spiritual enemies have more power than we do? That, that, that we'll never win in this conflict we're engaged in? That the church is in a losing fight? It's so easy to become discouraged and lose sight of God's might. Because in ourselves we are so weak. But don't lose heart. Joshua 2 tells us God is indeed giving us the kingdom. He is giving us the heavenly inheritance and the hearts of our spiritual enemies melt away before us. Listen to, listen to the way Paul writes in Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, didn't Christ do that? Didn't God crush Satan under Christ's feet? Yes, he did. He crushed the serpent's head. But we are in Christ, filled with the same spirit of Christ the power of Christ's resurrection at work in us. And so Paul writes that God will soon crush Satan under your feet and all your weakness and all your struggling with sin. Don't forget that promise. What about indwelling sin? What about the persistent sins, the besetting sins that we war against? Are they more powerful than the power of Christ at work within us? Listen to Romans, again, Romans 6, verse 16. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Sin won't have power over you. It's not your master. It's not the world you live in. Because Christ died. And you died to sin in Him. Your your old self, your sinful self, died with Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Brothers and sisters, Make this concrete for yourself. What's the sin? What are the sins, the struggles that seem to have power and dominion over you? You can take that sin and and put it into the verse. Pride shall not have dominion over you. Anxiety shall not have dominion over you. Covetousness shall not have dominion over you. Spiritual apathy shall not have dominion over you. Bitterness shall not have dominion over you. If God could reassure his people on the verge of the conquest that his might was at work in them, that he himself was going to go with them, fight for them, fight before them, surely he can reassure us in the holy spiritual war in which we are engaged. Christ, our captain, has already gone before us. He's defeated the foe. He's he's gone into the heavenly inheritance. He's already there calling us to follow by his Holy Spirit's presence. The power of his resurrection is working in us to give us might. And so our enemies are terrified of us. One of my favorite hymns is Jesus' Priceless Treasure. Uh, It poetically captures the confidence that this reassurance should give us. Hear these words. In thine arms I rest me. Foes who would molest me cannot reach me here. Though the earth be shaking, every heart be quaking, Jesus calms my fear. Lightnings flash and thunders crash, yet though sin and hell assail me, Jesus will not fail me. And then the next verse of the hymn ratchets it up even further. It says this, Satan, I defy thee. Death, I now decry thee. Fear, I bid thee cease. World, thou shalt not harm me, nor thy threats alarm me. While I sing of peace, God's great power guards every hour. Earth and all its depths adore Him 
silent bow before Him. Brothers and sisters, God's enemies, our spiritual enemies, are terrified of the Lord our God. He is giving us the inheritance. Let us go forth reassured, bold in our faith. Let's pray together.